Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for May 2015. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen men's rights activist, crybaby Lee Zachariah. And with me as always is... Hi there everybody. Uh, I'm writer, hyphen director, hyphen immortan, uh, Paul Anthony Nelson. And our very, very special fifth anniversary guest is none other than... Hi, this is Mark Protosevich, uh, screenwriter of The Cell, Poseidon, I Am Legend, Thor, and the Old Boy remake. Hyphen occasional producer, hyphen film lover. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, we're actually going to start with... Uh, the one film I don't think you have seen, which is uh, Brad Bird's Tomorrowland, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. I was unable to see that this week. Is right. that is that unable in, in inverted commas? or uh... <laughs> no, no, I did want to see it. I was actually going to take uh, uh, some of my nieces and nephews, but it just didn't work out. Just making sure. A lot of the reviews I, I read were, were positive. Uh, some were mixed. But I, I'm a Brad Bird fan, so I try not to pay too much attention to the naysayers. No, that's... Oh, look, I'm a Brad Bird fan as well. I think he's done some amazing stuff. And, um, yeah, I, w- I was looking forward to Tomorrowland quite a lot. And I have to say that, you know, if films are graded purely on ambition, then Tomorrowland is like a five-star film. I, I admired the hell out of it without actually being moved by it. Right, okay. Mm. That's my fear. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's part of this... Um, I don't know if this is consciously what he's doing, but it sort of seems a bit Super 8-ish, in which there's this sort of uh, aping of, of, I guess you'd call it the Spielberg model of uh, family adventure films, and it's just right. so overstuffed with, I guess, all the stuff that he wants in there. I, I, th- th- there doesn't seem to be a lot of, you know, kill your darlings, you know, get rid of that, because it doesn't actually help the story, mm. but it helps the ideology of it. And... I, I got to say that I actually love that uh, Bird has such a strong opinion. I I don't actually agree with much of it, and and I got to say his sort of Randian vision of the future uh, terrifies me a little bit. But hmm. it's it's so refreshing to see such a strong point of view in such large scale filmmaking that I actually like that. Yeah, I it's interesting. I saw this today, and I'm a huge Brad Bird fan as well. It's it's interesting. I think it's the first one of his films that feels overcooked. Mm. Um, he usually ju- judges the sentiment and the ideas so beautifully, and I think in this film, I think they're just they're just boiling over. I think there's there's you know there's there's stuff that is affecting, and then it's immediately followed by something incredibly schmaltzy. It's like I don't think any of the family stuff really works in this film. It all feels pretty pretty heavy handed. But I think it dead on about. The ideas, and this is the thing I found the most interesting about Tomorrowland. It felt to me like, and and it's also co-written by Damon Lindelof as well. So I'm not sure how much is Lindelof and how much is Bird, but it seemed to me to be a direct rebuke to the culture of kind of blockbuster destruction porn that we're seeing now. Of you know, every blockbuster is trying to one up each other in terms of destroying worlds, and just we hear so much about how the environment's making the world cave in, and it's like let's put it on screen and let's destroy everything. Mm. It feels like a rebuke to that, and to also the internet culture of outrage. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I get what you're saying. I recently saw the trailer for San Andreas, Mm -hmm. 
And I'm watching it, and I, I said to myself, who wants to see this? <laughs> yeah. Particularly who when wants, you live in Los Angeles. Who wants to see a city destroyed and th- thousands of people dying? And, and I, I don't know if it, what it's, but, but I see this in every superhero movie ever, mm-hmm. where it's just endless destruction, and, but, but no real consequences of that destruction on a, on a personal level. You know, you don't you don't see body bags being carried out at the end of the Avengers, no, or uh, or Man of Steel, you, and so it almost I don't know. It, it's a little concerning to me. Yeah, it's it's like let's avoid let's PG thirteen everything, but let's make the stakes bigger and actually up the carnage without actually showing any of it. Right. Um, which is yeah, as you say, it's troubling. Yeah, I kind of feel with this with, with, with Tomorrowland. Like yeah, there's a there's a line in it about. Um, the fact that we're all kind of wallowing in this, in this, you know, world is going to end kind of rhetoric, and it's like we we just sink into this future because to submit to it asks nothing of us. And I thought that that was really a really intriguing idea that they were putting out there. Like, I like the idea of their solution. I'm not sure if it actually fully works. I like the hopefulness of it, like the optimism of it. But, yeah, it seems like for every great idea, there's a counter idea that doesn't quite work or there's a plot point that is really unexplained. And I I can't help thinking it's a bit of the Lindelof creeping in in terms of, like, awesome ideas that aren't terribly well resolved. I do like the design and I like that there are two girls as the leads because it would have been so obvious to have a girl and a boy and they cast two girls, which is, it feels like quite a a progressive choice. And so that's interesting because that's something we haven't really seen before. Although, Um, although the, 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 the the main girl is clearly in her early to mid twenties playing a teenager, which is, is, I can never pick ages. Yeah. She just so gives off and she's 24, I think, but she so gives off that vibe. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, from one vision of the future to another, and it's pretty exciting for us because we don't really get Australian documentaries into US cinemas, <laughs> but, we're fi- but we've got one. Fury Road is playing in the US, and, uh, and you get to see what life is like over here at, in the present. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because I've, I've been having a bit of an online debate with some friends about Fury Road that, that seems to be not going away and people commenting um, because I, I've, I've found that unless you declare your unabashed love for it, <laughs> you somehow hate it. Yeah. And I, don't, I, 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 I see that a lot in reactions to films lately, especially online is that reactions seem to fall into loved it or hated it. And there's a big in-between there. And for me, with Fury Road, on a technical level, on a visual level, on a sheer experience level, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I saw things in that film that I've never seen before and will never see again. It's as if, you know, something from... George Miller's mind was directly transplanted on screen. And, 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 you know, if there's a film you must see on a big screen with a great sound system, that's, it's, that's it. And, and, and I, was, I was awed by it a lot of, a, a lot of the time and, and, just, and sort of just sitting there with my jaw dropped open 
But, but here's my, <laughs> my, my big but. Ultimately, it left me cold. I, 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 the experience was, was thrilling, but I didn't have the same connection that I had with Mad Max 2 or, the, or even the original Mad Max. That there was something about the, the very superficially drawn characters and just jumping right into the story and the nonstop action. I kind, at times I just was a bit on overload and ultimately walked out not feeling very emotionally connected. But then when I say things like that, people think I don't, didn't like the film. I did like the film. <laughs> and, I had, and, I, and I really had a thrilling time and I want to see it again. But I, I've actually been sort of racking my brain about why I walked out of there not feeling the same thrill that I did many years ago when I walked out of uh, Mad Max 2. Hmm. I don't know if you heard that crash before, Mark, but it was just me flipping a table. <laughs> I, I've, I've been getting I've been getting that uh, reaction uh, from from a lot of my my film lover friends, but I'm speaking I'm just giving my honest reaction. No, I, I look. I have to confess to being. Well, I was quite wary because the reaction was so effusive. Uh, before I got to see it, that I thought, okay, it's getting to the point where my expectations have been managed, and no matter how good it is, it can't possibly live up to them. And and it did. Look, I, I it's it's my film of the year so far, and I was so won over by not just the aesthetic of things I've never seen before, as you say, you know, there, there's stuff on in this film that I've just never seen, but I think there's a lot of really interesting. Uh, you know, so much has been made of the of the feminism, and I think what works about that is it's just so. I don't know. I don't want to say quietly feminist because nothing about this film is quiet, but it's just <laughs> so. It, it's done without you know planting a flag on it, I guess, and it's and I think it works because it's so refreshing and unlike what we see in so many films, and it, and I also think it's got a message about you know the the, the fact that just structurally. You know, two-thirds of the way through, they turn around and go back the way they came, which should be disastrous, you know, in terms of plotting out a film, because you don't want to make the audience feel like they're just doing the same thing over again. But I think that the the subtext about not leaving the world you're in, but changing it for the better, uh, is such a strong idea, and I really responded to that. Yeah, I this is my film of the year, too. I mean, I, I confess, Mad Max 1 and 2 are my all-time favourite Australian films, but also in terms of balance, I, other than the first half hour, which I'm sure is the only bit George Miller directed, I loathe Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> right. So I went to this, again, like, I, I was blown away by the trailers, and I thought, this film cannot possibly measure up to these trailers, and found that, oh my god, no, it, it's actually topping them, this is quite... Um, incredible. And as you say, Mark, it is a pure, it's the most purely visceral, you know, oral visual cinema experience I've had in a hell of a long time. Um, I, I, I think on that level, it may be one of the best ever. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I, I, look, I'm calling, I'm saying definitely best action film of the 2010s, and with Kill Bill, best action film of the 2000s, and one of the best 
um, ever. And it's, as you say, you know, it's bringing practical stunts back into the conversation. I mean, there's stuff they do in this film. You're like, how do these crazy motherfuckers walk out of this? <laughs> in, in some ways, I almost feel like I'm asking for too much. It's sort of like going to the greatest restaurant in the world and getting a 15-course meal and 14 of them absolutely blowing you away, and then you're lingering, yeah, but that dessert wasn't so great. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think that sort of sums up, that, that probably sums up my reaction. I really did love so much of it and admire so much of it. And other people, of course, are, then are praising it for not succumbing to the cliches of backstory and character and mm. exposition and and. I could see that, but also there's a reason I think that those things have existed in storytelling since the you know since stories were first told. Yeah. So uh, like I, I found I just found the writing really I, I just found it really lean and sinewy. Like I, I felt it gave us enough to know about everything and just was so incredibly propulsive. And and for me, all of the action was actually rooted in character, which I feel a lot of action films don't either overstate or completely, you know, just forget about. Um, I, thought this, I thought this walked that line really well. But the thing we've not mentioned yet, and it's the film, thing about the film I found the most impressive and just gobsmacked me from scene to scene, was the design. Mm. This film looks like, I mean, it's so intricate. It's, it's, but it's almost Jodorowsky-like at times. Uh, yes, I, 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 I agree completely. In fact, one of the first things I did was buy the book on the design. Yeah. On the art of Fury Road, I mean, because it, it yes, I, I I agree on that level. It is absolutely stunning, and you know everything has a story, and everything has a meaning, and everything you know, like you know, Miller's got reasons and backgrounds and things. You know, he could tell you what the tattoos on Nux's chest, you know, uh, the burns on Nux's chest mean, and what you know, all the different social strata mean. It's the the amount of detail and effort that has been put into building this world just astonished me in a way I haven't been in in a long long time and like it was just is awe-inspiring right I, I on that level I completely agree well from one film featuring a strong female lead with a detachable arm to another oh hey, hey. thank you <laughs> Excellent. I don't think I don't think you're aware, Mark. I don't know if they know if, whether they're getting it around LA over there. But Lee is the king of the Segway <laughs> in terms of this podcast. I'll make sure that I'll make sure that's uh, announced. Oh, pl- <laughs> please do. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's an it's what I'm known for nationally. I'd like it to go international. You should try to go international. Yeah, <laughs> go global. But uh, I would say Ex Machina is the film that I personally would like. Ridley Scott to see because the the versions of Blade Runner evolved from Deckard is not a replicant to Deckard thinks he might be a replicant to Deckard is definitely a replicant no backsies and my favorite <laughs> one is the one where he thinks he might be because Blade Runner in in a sense is ultimately a story about empathy and that's what happens in Ex Machina there's a point at which this this guy who's visiting his billionaire Steve Jobs, whatever boss, uh, who has created artificial intelligence and gets to a point where he thinks he might be a robot. And he's wrong, but he thinks he might be. And that pivot is the key part of the film that informs the emotional aspect. That was my favorite scene in the film. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I, I think there's a lot of in that sort of intellectual level of investigation going on in this film, but it's also visceral. I think Alex Garland has kind of quietly become one of the best sci-fi screenwriters out there. Like, mm. I can't... I, it's like almost every one of his, his films that he's written, I, I've really dug. At the very least, you know, some, like, 28 Days Later are among, you know, one of my favourite horror sort of things ever made. But then you've got things like Sunshine and uh, Never Let Me Go and even something as stripped back and weird as Dread. And he makes his directorial debut here. And, yeah, I just, I, I just feel like he, he kind of... I don't know, it's the kind of sci-fi I'm into. You know, it's, it's, it, it's a sci-fi of, uh, of ideas, but it's also visceral and also uncomfortable um, and, 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 and says things about humanity. I really, really dug this film. I was incredibly fond of it. I, 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 really, I really liked it, too. And it's, it's, the interesting thing is that it's lingering with me Yeah. in a, in a, in a lot of ways. I remember it, at a certain point when I was watching it, going, okay, there are going to be some reveals. <laughs> in, you know, very early on in the <laughs> film, I'm going, okay, there are going to be some surprises coming up. There are going to be some reveals. And when they come up, it wasn't exactly, I, they weren't entirely unexpected. I'm going, oh, that's, that's good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's, you know, I kind of maybe not saw it coming, but it, it certainly wasn't surprising. But they work in the overall scheme of things. And and I remember walking out, going, I liked that. That was solid, and 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 and, and especially because it is a film of ideas, and I, I'm that's something I often find very lacking, yeah. um, and that it deals with, you know, what it means to be a human being, what it you know what it uh, means to be in control of another living thing. Who has the power? You know, if you're the if you're a creator, do you have the you know do you have the power? Does your creation should your creation have its own power? And and you know, getting back to even you know basic questions from Frankenstein, I remember liking it quite a bit, and also being incredibly impressed just by the design of it, by the mm, look. Yes, the you know just the way he used the environment, both the the environment of the house and the environment then the environment uh, outside just that an amazing location and I remember sort of walking out going yeah that was really good and the but the thing about it is is that in some ways I keep thinking about it a little bit every day mm-hmm. and uh, it it really has resonance and and I you know I admire him quite a bit Garland. Yeah, I, I could have actually got a huge Frankenstein vibe from this. Like, it felt like a very, I, I, I want to call it the thoroughly modern Prometheus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually thrilled that it's ha- of having the success that it's having, that it, that it really seemed to, to engage people and spark people because it's, it, a lot of it's very dialogue-driven. You know, I, I think the Hollywood studio version of it, if it were developed within one of the major studios, would have been entirely different. And I, I loved the contained feeling of it. Yeah, and there there were some aspects to it I, that I started thinking. In some ways, it's almost like Polanski directed this thing. Hmm. And mm, uh, right, yeah, there's a lot of very uncomfortable dynamics going on. Right, in, with, yeah. with, it, with with a small group of people. Yeah, I loved it in that regard. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting uh, trio of films. I didn't actually realize this when we were selecting which films of this month to talk about, but 
three very distinct visions of the future. Um, yeah. And I think the actual future will be a sort of a combination of the last two films. So that's my <laughs> prediction. <laughs> All right, so a few episodes ago, we asked if the writer, the screenwriter, was unfairly sidelined as the author of, uh, of the film. And there was actually a key aspect we failed to address. And I think, uh, Mark, you might be the perfect person to, to talk to about it, because I've heard a lot of critics, and I include myself in that. I've done this many, many times and continue to do it, criticize the writer for what's on screen, because we assume that everything on screen is the work of the credited writer, whichever credit appears written by, screenplay by, story by, uh, we assume that every word on screen is from that person. And like we would just, like Paul was just like a second ago talking about uh, which ideas in Tomorrowland were Damon Lindelof and which were Brad Bird, and we're trying to pass this from from the other side of the, the looking glass, I guess. But we know that in Hollywood, that is so rarely the case. And we wanted to get your perspective on this. Oh my God, the the, the variations uh, that, <laughs> that happen on any project are astounding, and I think would shock most people mm. um, at, at at what can happen. I mean, because films can range, in, and I've had this experience myself. I, I could discuss every project <laughs> in terms of. Um, what happened and in what credit because there are times when you know there are certain films where very little was changed from the script that the director signed on for or um, that an actor agreed to play the part that there are there are times when that early script that early version of the script the one that gets sent out to everyone to see if they want to do it you know, there are instances where very little has changed. And what you see on the screen is very much what was done. But even in that sense, little things can change. Act, if a director allows it, actors can improvise lines of dialogue. Entire scenes can be cut out that uh, explain thing that would have explained something that people go, well, how, well, why didn't, you know, what, why are they doing that? Or what, what, you know, why are they going there? Mm. It's because a scene got cut out, but you wrote a scene that explained <laughs> all of that. Uh, and, and so a lot of times stuff is being cut for, for time or because it didn't work or somebody gave a bad performance. So things are eliminated. There are other instances where your script is completely rewritten and you that but you end up with with final credit uh the the the, the prime <laughs> example for me is probably my my least favorite professional experience for for some reasons and, and a, a, a good one for others was working on poseidon the remake of the poseidon adventure mm. i am i have sole credit on that film but not a single line of dialogue in the film was written by me. <laughs> there were, I, I was the first writer on the project, and I, I was on it for a while, developed it with Wolfgang Peterson. Then at a certain point, they brought on, I think there were in total 10 other writers Jesus. on that film. A lot of them working 
right up and right up until uh, they started shooting. Um, I, I can the the list is amazing, and the amount of money that they spent uh, on various drafts of the script. A lot of a lot of the stuff that was commissioned was never used. Um, the basic the basic structure of the movie is mine. The characters are mine. But at a certain point, they brought on the, the one of the producers on the film, um, Akiva Goldsman. Then re, essentially rewrote my script, changing all the dialogue, changing some of the character relationships, and that was the film that got made. I, I mean, I, I remember when I went to the first test screening that I saw of that, and I felt like I had gotten hit by a truck because. Mm. It was so unlike what I had had uh, had written in a lot of regards. In, in other ways, it was very much the same. But not a single line that is spoken by the people in the movie was written by me. And that's the thing with WGA arbitration and stuff, isn't it? Like you have to have changed a certain amount of the plot and a certain amount of the characters in order to have screenwriting credit. It doesn't really matter about dialogue. But it's also probably telling that um, that that no none of the other writers actually applied for credit or, or <laughs> sought. Wow! Wow! Uh, on it, so you know, a, a lot of a lot of screenwriters will come in and do that script doctor work, and that don't really don't really pursue credit. They're they're doing it for the they're doing it for the paycheck. Mm. So, uh, because they, they sort of want to pick and choose, actually, in what circumstance their name is going to appear. But then, you know, I could look at a film, you know, in, in another circumstance, like a film like The Cell, that's, you know, pretty much word for word what I wrote and the structure, everything, the, the you know, the characters, the dialogue, everything is, it was, my, but the only thing that evolved during that process were the visuals mm. uh, because Tarsem had very clear ideas about what he wanted certain scenes to look like. He had locations in mind, costumes in mind. And so the only thing, the only stuff that I ever really did in terms of rewriting were, were, were based on very specific images that he had. Uh, so there's no way of knowing. I often think in terms of when people comment on the script uh, in a review, that the only way they could really fairly do that would be to read the credited writer's original draft. Yes, mm. and that and that's and it's so difficult. Like from the critic's point of view, when you're talking about what happens in a film, like if you're talking about the structure of it, you're talking about how it was written, and it's hard to do that without. Uh, going with what the film has assured you is the is the name of the writer, and so we start to m- demonize some writers and mythologize others in a way that probably doesn't reflect the work the way that we think it does. I, I think that's that's very accurate. So it's certain certain writers, yes, uh, you know, uh, like like Charlie Kaufman, that they they attain this level of of status that is very deserved. Yeah. Uh, that's you know a very unique vision. The, the, the average working writer in the major leagues uh, studio system, it's, it's incredibly complex. You know, you're a, you're a gun for hire. Mm. Uh, mm. It's, you know, there are circumstances where you've written an original script and you're presenting that. Um, most of the time, though, you're being approached by a studio or a producer 
to write a project that they have. You know, Marvel wants to do a Thor movie. Warner Brothers wants to uh, do a new version of I Am Legend. So they, they're approaching you and talking to you about how you would approach the material and what you would bring to the table um, and how you see the movie. And then you write that draft. But then it, 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 in many cases, you were, you were rewritten and sometimes those rewrites are not, are not uh, acknowledged. Other times they are. I'm, I'm often still surprised that when, if you share credit with someone, that a lot of people think that you wrote it together, that you sat in the same room together hmm. yeah. and, and, and worked on it together. And that's, that's not the case. Um, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Well, it's, all, it's all in the ampersand or the and, isn't it? Right, that's true. Yes, that's yeah. yeah, that's true. But I don't think most people know that. Or I've I've run into people who assume that you you know that you were all in a room together if they're four credited games <laughs> on them or that you were somehow all uh, working on it together. And that that's that's never really or not really not the case. Not at all. Not often at all. I think that the the thing that opened my eyes to the how uh, prevalent this this is is. Um, Joss Whedon, you know, he's one of the first sort of, I guess, celebrity screenwriters we've had in, in the last uh, few decades, and the, it's he famously gets blamed for the fourth Alien film, which he hates, and is apparently nothing like the draft he turned in, but I know people who still go, Got that bloody Joss Whedon, he wrote that terrible Alien film, and, and knowing his work, it doesn't feel like him at all, but um, I was also reading about how he got screwed out of a credit on speed during arbitration and if you look at the different you can actually compare what he added to what was in there before and i i would argue that what has made it such an action classic is largely his contribution well i, I would yeah that that wouldn't surprise me at all mm. i mean and i remember when that movie was going into production all everyone was talking about was his draft of the script right yeah so, it, 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 believe me, the history of any movie, <laughs> any major studio film that's out there, the history of the script is, is mind-boggling. And, and, and do you think this, is possi- this confusion is possibly why uh, screenwriters often get, in, in a Hollywood context, often get sidelined in terms of being considered, you know, auteurs? In t- because of this confusion, nobody knows who wrote what. I, I think a big part of it in my mind, is perception. And there's a very interesting dichotomy in the industry in that in television, it's the writer who is looked at as the guiding force Mm. Mm. of the show. That, uh, you know, the directors are brought in to service the writers, Mm -hmm. to service the creators of the show. And even... In a lot of circumstances, even on, on television episodes, uh, that certain writers are getting credit, that there, there were contributions by other people, uh, but sometimes not credited. Sometimes they are. But the, but the perception is, is that what we're seeing comes from the mind of this writer or this group of writers, and it's Vince Gilligan's Breaking Bad. Yeah. It's Matthew, Matthew, Matthew Weiner's Mad. Uh, Mad, Mad. Yeah. But in, in film, and I, I'm guilty of this too, uh, of you look at the film as, you know, the vision of the director. You know, that's what we talk about. We talk about, we very rarely will uh, discuss 
um, the role of the screenwriter in a lot of the directors that we love. But I, but I think you know those. The, it's a collaboration. Um, yes, it comes alive because of the the work of the director, but they've they've got nothing to shoot without the screenplay. In a certain sense, part of it is is that writers are uh, often replaced. I sometimes used to uh, attribute it as or or compare it to um, American uh, baseball, in that. A, a pitcher, you're starting, you, you know, you have a starting pitcher and he'll go for maybe six innings. And then in the final three innings, um, you're bringing in sometimes four or five, you know, different pitchers, uh, you know, to apply to certain batters or certain mm. or closers who maybe pitch for just one inning or uh, or even sometimes they'll bring in a pitcher just to address one specific batter. And so in, in some ways, screenwriters are, are, are it's very similar in, in, in the Hollywood system. You generally, I like being the guy who starts out. I like being a starter. I, I like being yeah. involved from the very beginning. There are other people who, who spend their careers coming in and, uh, you know, doing polishes right before production or mm. during production. Um, so, it, so in that sense, maybe it takes away from some of that, that idea of authorship. But then there are other cases, you know, that there have been two times where I was the only writer on the project from beginning to end and was there during production uh, through f- through the whole thing, and so and that th- that was the cell and the old boy remake, and so it it very so you do feel a certain sense of ownership and pride in the material that maybe is not as acknowledged then, especially maybe by the critical community, mm. and particularly too working with two directors with such strong visual senses as well, like. There yeah. is that temptation to say Spike Lee's old boy and Tarsum's cell, and yeah, right, right, yeah, and that's that's just uh, that's 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 just the way it is. And any writer working in Hollywood, you know that going in. Personally, unless you've written and directed the film, I can't stand the a film by credit. Mm. Yeah, uh, it, it 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 bugs me. It, yeah, it, it it bothers me because a lot of time. Other people have sometimes sometimes a director is coming on a project and he essentially has spent what six months in prep or something and then go and then directs the film. Then, of course, spends a lot of time in post. But the writer may have been involved with the project for seven years. Mm. And, you know, and so that often gets overlooked. I mean, I could look at I Am Legend, and, and I was involved with that project off and on for 10 years before it got made, and wrote numerous drafts for different directors and different stars at different times. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was hired, I think I was hired four separate times to come wow. back on that. Is that, a, is that a weird experience where you kind of get the script, the, the script boomerangs back to you, and it's kind of like this, and then you, like, do you try and make it more like your original drafts or do you kind of follow the studio's notes the initial draft that i wrote was going to be directed by ridley scott starring arnold schwarzenegger Mm. all right yeah i I remember those rumors yeah and you know then they brought on another writer and then they brought me back 
Then the movie fell apart, uh, primarily because of budget, and Warner Brothers had had a few uh, big sci-fi flops at the time, so they were, they were less keen on doing it. Then it sat. Then they, it sat for a while. Then they brought in another director, and I worked with him. But still, it was going to be Arnold. Uh, then it that fell apart, and it sat for a while again. Then Will Smith did it, and I was brought back to work with Will on a draft. And Michael Bay was interested in doing it. And then one of the things that happened at that time was that Twenty Eight Days Later came out, and. I had actually heard a story, I don't know if it's true, that Danny Boyle wanted to do I Am Legend and they didn't want to go forward, they didn't want to do it with him. And so he said, I'll go off and do my own version of this. (laughs) I don't know if that's true, but I did hear that story. Um, And then it sat again for a while and then got got resurrected um, with Will. Will came back after a few years and said, I want to do this now. And then at, the, and that, at that point, then the script gets rewritten. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually very proud of the first two-thirds of that movie and have some problems with, with the final third. That It's difficult for me to watch because I was involved with that project so long and I, I just would not have approached it that way. Mm. That, that's another thing that can happen even with if a director doesn't even really change your script that much. They are interpreting it in a way. And, and sometimes you go, oh, that's even better than I imagined or you go yeah that's about what i saw or you're sometimes sitting there watching it and going no why did you do it that way because it doesn't (laughs) coincide with what you it doesn't coincide with what you saw in your head of how the scene would play so a lot of a lot of it is interpretation so but you know but again it is it is a collaboration so the lesson when reading film credits is don't believe everything you read yes (laughs) i think that's probably true All right, Mark, please tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hellas for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. I chose the Japanese director, Masaki Kobayashi. Fantastic. And this is, um, he's not one of the names that people usually talk about when they talk about Japanese cinema. There's Kurosawa, there's Ozu. Um, why, what, was, what is it about Kobayashi that speaks to you? I think one of the reasons, first off, I would say that one of the reasons I chose him was... Because I, I, I'm a champion of him and feel that he should be always included in, in that list of great Japanese directors. I, I certainly would include him um, with, the, the, with the ones you discussed in Itsuguchi. And uh, <laughs> if this podcast inspires people to uh, check out his films and uh, track, uh, track him down, track the films down and appreciate him, then that will give me some great satisfaction because I, I do feel that he doesn't get um, the consideration that, in my mind, he deserves. Mm. Although I must commend whoever it is at the Criterion Collection that is clearly a fan of his because yes. they've been very good about paying attention to his key works. So I'm, I'm very grateful uh, in, in that regard. My relationship with Kobayashi began when I was living in Los Angeles and there was an Asian film festival going on. And I, I was trying to see as much as I could. And it was probably something in a, in a paper 
that was talking about the film festival mentioned Harakiri and in this critic's opinion, it being one of the best samurai films or one, uh, one of the best Japanese films that he had seen. And I said, so, oh my God, I, I, was, I had to check that out. I love samurai film, but was mainly exposed to it via Kurosawa films or the Zatoichi series. So th- that was sort of my samurai frame of reference, which was mostly what was available at the time and so I went to this screening of Harakiri and it was an amazing print beautiful print widescreen print it, it, it looked flawless it was must have been you know as good as the day it came out hmm. and it really was one of those transcendent movie going experiences for me uh, which there's there's no comparison to when it happens. When you're sitting there watching a film that you know little about mm. and it just draws you in and keeps you intrigued through the whole thing. It's, it's why I love going to the movies is that that feeling you get where you're absolutely absorbed in this in you're almost oblivious to the, you know to the people around you and and you're focused on on the screen and watching what's happening and every little turn every little change brings something new and different and unexpected and it, it it's in, it's really engaging you on these multiple levels you know emotionally intellectually aesthetically because that was another aspect of it is I, I just loved the way it looked I loved the design of it the the cinematography the, the the way he would compose shots and then building up to this incredible climax just this tremendous fight scene which where there really there aren't that many in the film for a samurai film mm. it's really in the last few minutes that there there's actual sword play it was just kind of a stunning experience for me and and then it, you know, it ends on this very tragic kind of bleak, cynical note. And I will admit to being a sucker for that kind of ending. <laughs> the darker, the better. You know, I've actually often said that the two greatest challenges, I think, in film, and they're my favorite things, are to make a film that's either incredibly beautiful or incredibly disturbing. And probably my favorite film somehow managed to do both. Then I just became obsessed with finding anything else of his that, that, I could, that I could get my hands on. I think it was Kwaidan I saw next, and that blew me away in a whole different way. Mm. And then um, Samurai Rebellion. And then, you know, when I finally, years later, saw The Human Condition, it, it absolutely floored me. I, I think it's one of the great achievements in cinema. Yeah. And, and then I would watch the films again and again, and it, there's nuances and details in them that amaze me every time. And I think that, that to me, is the sign of a great director. I just think there's something going on with him that strikes all my needs, <laughs> visually, technically, in terms of character and performance, storytelling, and theme. That That, I think, is what really separates him from a lot of the Japanese directors is his he's so critical of Japan yeah mm. and 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 certain structures in Japanese society both in the past and at the time 
like in you know post-war Japan in the in, in the human condition. He's bold. You know, I had a thought rewatching the human condition in, in, in preparation for this podcast and, and having the reaction that, oh my God, if an American filmmaker made a film as critical of the US government or the US military in oh 1950s America, mm. he he Joe McCarthy would have <laughs> had him brought on, you know, trial as a traitor. Yeah. It's incredibly critical and it's, it's, you know, brutal at times in its depiction, uh, especially of the military and hierarchy. And again, in terms of just a director having courage, the courage to take on challenging material uh, or uh, unfavorable material or unpopular material, it works in that way. And it's so consistent in his in his films that then you, you're, you clearly are looking at someone who who has something to say who has who definitely has a personality this guy's not just interpreting someone else's script he's bringing a whole other dimension to it although i do have to point out that you know on the, in the the samurai films in harakiri and samurai rebellion he was working with i i think one of the greatest screenwriters ever was uh, hashimoto who worked with kurosawa who who wrote most of kurosawa's films and 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 i think the scripts of samurai rebellion and karakiri are are really fantastic and and actually kobayashi in interviews was extremely kind about hashimoto's contribution and and really acknowledged him as a a collaborator and a, and kind of a shared voice in those films it's interesting you mentioned like the the unpopular subjects and the bravery. I I was the the first one that struck me in that regard was the thick walled room, mm-hmm. which is was the third film he made, but then was released three years later, and he made a few melodramas in between. But like this is a film that just I mean it's so humanist and so beautiful in some ways and so surreal in others, but so confronting in others because it's essentially lower class war criminals kind of arguing, well, why are we being you know dragged over the coals and punished, and when you know the people that ordered us to do all this horrible stuff are out there free, you know, doing what they like, and it's kind of like, gee, I wonder how we'd feel if the Germans had made this film, right? Yeah, I just, I just found it really interesting and kind of uncomfortable in some ways, but it's brilliant. Uncomfortable is a, uncomfortable is a good word, yeah. There are moments in that, especially when you go to the flashbacks of, of what their crimes were, and, you know, oftentimes they are being ordered to do what, you know, what made them a war criminal, and they probably would have been shot if they didn't follow those orders. So it really does you know, get into that situation. But, you know, he was he was acknowledging that at that time. It's just to me, it's just stuns me that he that that film was made at that time. Well, he was like that, like right from the beginning. I mean, like he was drafted into the war and he was a pacifist and refused promotion above the rank of private. And I I think human condition, this is a story uh, that I think when you read the book, it, up until a certain point, it's almost beat for beat his life story. Him right. and, and the writer of The Human Condition are the same age as well. They were both born in 1916. Right. So, like, yeah, it's virtually a facsimile point of view. And, but I think what's really interesting about Kobayashi's background 
is that he's got this, uh, like you say, this incredibly strong point of view, and it doesn't really matter whether he's making uh, a samurai film or a film about the war or just a film about modern life. There's this consistent theme throughout, which is this, yeah, as you say, this criticism of Japan, but it's also specifically about the things that he sees as pointless that cause all this misery, like things like honour. There are so many films in which... He takes what at the time was, you know, if 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 a if a uh, woman is a prostitute, if she sleeps around, if she's from an unmarried couple, she's shamed and dishonoured, and you know, every time he attacks Japanese society for saying, look, this is this is a person. Why are you making up these rules about which people are are good and which are bad? You're just causing all this misery, and that is so consistent through all of his work. Jeez, even some of the melodramas there, like, if a woman's sick, she's useless, mm-hmm. you know? She can't possibly get married to somebody, you know, if she's got a limp or if she's got, you know, tuberculosis or whatever. That's it. I mean, there's a strong anti-authoritarian streak there, but it really is the, the futility of these social structures. In the Samurai Rebellion, the whole idea of the, the Lord forcing... Mifune's son to marry, you know, his concubine that he's no longer interested in. Mm. They develop this great relationship and they fall in love and they're very devoted to each other. But then the Lord wants her back. And it, it's this, this expression of how can an authority figure essentially dismiss the humanity of the, of the people in his community? Mm-hmm. And it really is you know, this pointing out of the insensitivity of those in power, the, the inhumanity of, of those in power, um, and, and, and not looking at people as human beings, not understanding their suffering. Um, that, that's, there's so much of that in the human condition. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, it's, God. I have to thank you, Mark, for bringing Kobayashi to my attention. I'd never seen any of his films before this. And I think, I think he made a lot of films that, that were very good to good and that I liked, but I think he's got two absolute genuine masterpieces and one damn near masterpiece, which for me are the um, Harakiri and the human condition and the near masterpiece is Samurai Rebellion. The human condition just moved me so much, though, but so much of it was about this institutionalised bullying that came under, you know, honour and discipline and all this sort of stuff to the point where I was watching part two of The Human Condition and um, watching the the poor guy with glasses and thinking this is almost beat for beat for Metal Jacket. I've had yes, I had oh, the wow. same thought. I had the same thought. Yeah, you know, because you know the the punishment that the whole uh, squad has uh, because of his ineptitude, the resentment to, uh, of him by the other men in the squad. Yeah, it's very it's very similar. And I just found that startling um, that, that that had such a clear uh, predecessor here. But I just became so invested in Kaji as a character and his journey and him and Michiko and their love. And it's weird, like, where some of the earlier melodrama stuff, I just couldn't really, it was a bit heavy-handed. I kind of wouldn't go with it. This this couple just felt so real to me. Yeah. Talking about his, his reaction to Japan, I, I wanted to sort of jump to one of his lesser-known works just for a moment because I watched... Tokyo Trial, a documentary he made in 1983, and I'm going to sound like Alvy Singer taking his dates to Sorrow and the Pity, but <laughs> despite this being a four-hour documentary about the fallout from World War II, it is one of the most watchable 
even-handed, informative, detailed, nuanced documentaries I've ever seen. I, w- I think I'd watch it again in a heartbeat. There's so much detail that sort of gets uh, swept over in history that he was so fascinated by. Wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to track that down. I've never seen that. Mm. I'm just wondering with a film like again and and critical of all s- sort of strata of of structure of, of J- Japanese society as well. Looking at a film like I Will Buy You, mm. is that the only film about sporting corruption that doesn't involve boxing? made before 1970, 1980, or what? Like, it feels uh, yeah. so much of its time. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I, that film could easily be remade today in the United States. Mm. Yeah. And, and because the, the, the issues that, it, even though, you know, there are different aspects to it, but, you know, they're all, especially in basketball now, actually, just in terms of, you know, uh, the the corruption of of athletes and then how athletes manipulate the system, but yeah, I I I, I don't think I've ever seen a movie really like it. And, and even boxing films are usually about you know like are you going to take the fall or aren't you? Yeah, and and that's and, and that, that's kind of about it. It's not almost about the you know the institutionalized corruption, which you know I I don't think I've ever seen a film like it. I think that's actually my favorite of the early films. Mm. Yeah, I, I have to admit a soft spot for the early melodramas. Um, the first couple, which were written by uh, Kasuki Kinoshita, uh, who was Kobayashi's mentor when he started out. But uh, in terms of his collaborators, I think we have to mention Tatsuya Nakadai. Is that right? Nakadai, yeah. Yeah, the actor he worked with the most, who I think, you know, if... if Anyone out there who idolizes Toshiro Mifune, you know, quite correctly, has to check this guy out because I think he is incredible. Yeah, he's a very close second. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And 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 in Japan was was almost as big a star mm. uh, as Mifune. He, he was incredibly uh, well known and well regarded, um, which is why I think I was <laughs> when I was rewatching Samurai Rebellion. And they have their battle at the end. Oh. At the end, I'm going. Oh, you know, probably in Japan, this was like you know, uh, Pacino and De Niro. <laughs> yeah, it's, this probably was a big moment to have mm. them on the screen at the same time. But no, but that's I mean, just an an incredible relationship between between them. But in terms of an actor director collaboration. I mean, it, 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 I think it, it ranks up there with, uh, you know, Scorsese and, and De Niro. Mm, without a doubt. Or, yeah, Kurosawa and Mifune. Uh, although, right. actually, they did uh, face off a few years earlier in Yojimbo, because that's where I knew that's oh, oh, from. That's right. That's right. He's the samurai with a gun. Yeah. But then, and then when um, Mifune and Kurosawa had their big falling out, it was Nakadai who went to work for Kurosawa. Yeah. Yeah, and Kurosawa and uh, Nakadai and Mifune were pals and all this sort of thing. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I think yeah, you know, you sort of in some of the interviews and stuff you read, it really did sound like this golden era of uh, of Japanese cinema in terms of just their the work, how they worked, how they all worked together. Yeah. And that, Kobayashi worked with a lot of the same actors film after film and and uh composers i mean i that's actually something i would the the 
the, the Toru Takametsu scores in uh, Harakiri and Kwaidan, I think, are amazing and absolutely essential to the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but And um, the same cinematographer uh, in, a, in, a, in a lot of the films, especially the, you know, sort of the, the, the key films. Yeah. He's got a be- beautiful use of dolly shots. Yes. And I love this thing he has of, uh, of just turning down the light and leaving a spotlight on the thing he wants you to look at. It's almost um, theatrical, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. There, there is a definitely a theatrical quality to, to the films. I mean, you know, it's evident in Harakiri. There, you know, there is a slightly exaggerated style in, in, term, in, you know, in, in terms of like a kabuki theatrical uh, acting style or, pre- or presentation in terms of, you know, how, how people are moving um, and, and position uh, gestures they'll make or positions uh, they'll take. Um, and, and, and very theatrical presentation in, in Kwaidan, mm, yeah. which I'm very fond of. That would, be, that, that would be a near masterpiece in my book, too. Yeah, Just, I did, that, that did terrify the hell out of me. It was... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the first time I saw that, that that movie creeped me out. Especially the uh, the vampire sequence and the uh, oh, what is it, Hoichi the earless yeah. uh, sequence. There, there's just some very it's there's there's a mood that's created that's you know as as sort of theatrical and elaborate um, and artificial. A, a lot of the sets and, and costumes are. It creates this. There's this mood of real dread. I, I think it, it's one to me. It's one of the best films that deals with the supernatural in terms of horror. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, if uh, anyone listening who really wants to check out his films now, you, you can't go past Hari Kiri, Kwaidan, Samurai Rebellion, and if you're in the mood for a ten-hour film about World War Two. The human condition, we're not kidding, it, it's, it's actually quite brilliant. Don't, screw in the mood, just see it. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> You'll it. get in the mood. <laughs> I mean, the, the, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of film that the more I see it and the more I think about it, I, I really do think it's maybe one of the, one of the great films, period. Without yeah. a doubt. Just, just in sheer of its scale and its ambition, and you know, it, it is. I think it's sometimes daunting for people to hear, you know, like a, a ten-hour film. But if you told them to binge watch ten episodes of a TV show, they'd yes. do it. And exactly. so, and it's got it's, the same well, kind of emotional throughline. Yes, like yeah. that's the thing. It does have the emotional engagement that a great TV show has. You're not watching a film of grand landscapes and big themes, and you know, and people you can't connect to. It's in, intensely connectable, right? Right, and and you do have these divisions. You know, uh, you know, it is in um, you know was released as three separate films, but it's like it's divided up into six parts. And I think you could actually do a part. Yeah. You know, yeah. Do, do those do those six installments um, in in separate viewings, and it, it would it works that way. It would you, you you would you would don't have to do the marathon. Yeah. But I think people would, would be greatly entertained and surprised and I don't know if delighted. Yeah, I'm delighted in its achievement, but it's mm. it is you're you're it's amazing what these people go through in that story in that story. It's bruising. You you feel like you've been through World War Two. <laughs> <laughs> Get to yeah. the end of it. Yeah. In, in a good way. 
Well, Mark, it's been amazing to be introduced to such an extraordinary filmmaker, and it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. That was fun. Thank you so much, Mark. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Silencio. Silencio.